All right, again, if you want to open to 2 Samuel chapter 5, and if you want to kind of put a pen or a finger, or if you've got a bookmark or multiple bookmarks in a study Bible, 1 Chronicles chapters 11 through 15-ish. We're not going to read all four or five chapters. Uh, Hopefully you've had a chance to review them. You'll find that a lot of the things that are found in the narrative of 2 Samuel 5 and 2 Samuel 6 are repeated, sometimes almost word for word, over in 1 Chronicles. However, there are some occasions where we'll go to 1 Chronicles because there's an extra little detail that's included that's a little more interesting. I don't mean more interesting, maybe uh, more uh, fleshes out some more information is a better way of putting that. Who can tell me something that we learned last week or something that we talked about last week uh, for the benefit of those who may be new to our study before we get into chapter 5? Who can tell me something um, that we covered last week? Ishbosheth is killed, and we're going to talk about him here in just a moment, which that kind of clears the way. Who was Ishbosheth? He was the son of Saul. And so, in a monarchy where you typically have the son of the king become the next king, and then the son of that king become the next king, uh, that's very important to acknowledge his death. Anything else, either from last week or from the previous week, if you can reach back in your brain 14 days ago and pull out something, anything that we've discussed that's key or important? Abner's revolt against David and how it kind of led to this very tragic series of events that have happened over the last two weeks, or at least over the last two weeks of our study. Let's go ahead into chapter 5, and I want to... Uh, kind of breeze through the first five verses here where it says, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, and they said, indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. What does that mean? Just, I mean, that's not a trick question, but what's that mean? Yeah, we're your kin, right? We're related to you. We're of you. Um, Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. Kind of sounds like the songs that they were singing back in 1 Samuel. Uh, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. The idea being that you are the one who is really the, uh, the model leader and the one that we look up to. Therefore, verse 3, the elders came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. They anointed David king over Israel. So David here is anointed king. Incidentally, not to spend more than 30 seconds talking about this. I, I thought about spending two or three minutes, but let's spend 30 seconds. What does it mean to be anointed? Chosen. Signified, sometimes we may use. Uh, anything else? Commissioned, Yeah, so there's a couple of different verbs that are appropriate there. Uh, what does the term Christ mean? It means the one who's anointed or the anointed one, right? So Jesus is the one who's commissioned, who's chosen, who's signified as being our ultimate leader of all. Uh, and then uh, David was 30 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned 
uh, over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. That could be a little bit confusing for someone who's brand new to the Bible. To When you have a, a reference to Judah and you have a reference to Israel and Judah, um, it becomes much more apparent and much more understandable when you get into the days of the kingdom post-Solomon and it divides and splits into the two different factions. But just be aware that someone who's brand new to the study of the Old Testament may look at that and say, I have no idea what they're talking about here when they talk about Judah and Israel. We take these things for granted, and so sometimes it's just good just to kind of put that in your, in your brain when you're studying with someone uh, who is uh, relatively new. Uh, Ms. Sherry talked about this just a moment or so ago, but with the recent death of Ishbosheth, this becomes more apparent or more evident or more plausible. Now that Ishbosheth is out of the way, we've, we've known ever since someplace in 1 Samuel, well, I'm going to ask you that in just a second, that David was anointed king or that David was initially chosen. You could argue that there were three major anointings of David, and each of them have kind of their little subtleties to it. Where in 1 Samuel, and you have one out of 31 chance of getting it right just by purely guessing, do we first read about David being chosen? Which chapter? I think I heard someone say it. 16, right? So remember, 1 Samuel chapter 15 is very familiar to us because what happened in 15, or maybe a way of phrasing it, going back to Mitch's uh, class, is what didn't happen in chapter 15 that was supposed to happen. Saul was supposed to destroy the Amalekites, and he spared the king whose name was Agag and got himself into a whole mess of trouble. Chapter 16 rolls around, and you see David being chosen. Uh, David was not the oldest, but he was the youngest of the children of his father, whose name was Jesse. And again, we take these things for granted. These things just kind of roll off our tongues. But just someone who's new to the scriptures uh, is going to need some extra time uh, to get some of these names straight. And like we talked about last week with Ishbosheth and Asahel and uh, all these different characters, sometimes they can be a little, and uh, Abner, they can be a little bit confusing. Uh, this goes back to, as I mentioned, 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, and it's also uh, referenced in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. I do want to just reach over to 1 Chronicles 11 verse uh, 13, or verse 3, I'm sorry, and just read that verse real quickly here. We'll go back to 1 Chronicles probably three times in our study together tonight. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to... Uh, came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with him at Hebron for the Lord, and they anointed David king over, Sam, uh, over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. So I thought that was just kind of interesting to associate Samuel's um, prophecy and planning by way of God uh, in David's being anointed. Okay, what happens in verses 6 through about verse 12? And you can cheat and just look at your subheadings in your Bible if you have those or if you've read it. What happens in 6 through 12? The defeat of the Jebusites. The Jebusites were a people who lived in a city that wasn't initially called Jerusalem, but it was called Jebu or Jebus, or depending on how you like to pronounce it. So these Jebusites kind of go back in history, if you can, 
And what's the problem? And this is the game that we play. Guess what I'm thinking? Why was, why were the, why is the presence of a Jebusites a troubling thing for us as Bible students? Right. Very good. That's, and that's what I was thinking. So thank you for being online with my thinking. Um, not that my thinking is always the right thinking. Um, but certainly these people, along with the Amalekites and, and all the other kites, right, uh, uh, or the ites, uh, were supposed to be removed from the land, not because God was saying these people are, are, are not my people, but because... They are not my people, and they will get you to think and, and to act in ways that are contrary to my ways. So uh, this brings us to the Jerusalem capital or to the Jerusalem siege or the conquest of Jerusalem. Um, in short, um, how did they go in and conquer the city? What was the, the trick that was used? Okay, surrounding the city, and then they used a particular device or method. What was that? Water tunnel, or sometimes we use uh, the phrase, I use the phrase water shaft. It depends on the version from which you're reading. Let's read just a couple of those verses here, uh, and help me understand verses 6 and 7. The king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, and they said, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you. What's that mean? You easily repel you. A blind, lame, uh, not very smart person or group of people are going to be able to take you down. Is there another place, guess what I'm thinking, is there another place in Old Testament scripture where someone makes fun of God's people and I'll give you a hint, foxes. Rebuilding the wall. Nehemiah is the one that comes to mind. Oh, a fox will climb up on that wall and knock it down, that wall that you're rebuilding so special uh, for the Lord's people here. Uh, verse 7, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. Where's the word Zion come from? Because that could be confusing to someone as well. What does Zion mean? And there may be more than one correct way of answering it. Zion is, is technically what? It's one of the hills, one of the mountains. So when we say we're marching to Zion, does that mean we're marching to Jerusalem? No, we're marching to New Jerusalem. Uh, when we sing, we're, come we that love the Lord, uh, let us march to Zion, it's the idea of the heavenly city. It's the idea of going to home to heaven, to the place where we're one day planning to be. Uh, and then the water canal or the water shaft. And I put up a picture. Uh, I, you probably can't really appreciate this, although at the very back in the plaid, this is a person who, uh, has anybody, uh, Bruce, you have, uh, usually when I call on Bruce, it's because I'm, he's in trouble. But have you been to uh, the Middle East? Have you, have you seen this? Okay. Has anyone ever been and seen this? I've, I've not. I've never been over there. I was, I was thinking about that a couple of days ago. This is what is called the, the water shaft or the water tunnel, also nicknamed after a particular king. Bonus points to the person who can identify the king who would also be famous for using this. Hezekiah. Hezekiah. Very good. Bonus points awarded. Someone make note of that. 
Uh, but that's a man or a woman. I can't tell if it, what the gender is from here because the picture's not very good. Standing in one of these canals. And so if you read here in verse 9, uh, uh, not verse 9 here. Uh, oh, yeah, verse, I'm sorry, verse 8. David said, whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft or the canal or different ways of talking about that or, or rendering that and defeats the Jebusites, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore, they say the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. I, there are places that I have stood in the United States where history has been made, and that's always really kind of fun, especially as an American history kind of person. I think this would be really interesting. And if someone wants to fund a trip for all of us to go, uh, you're welcome to do so. Um, maybe Bill Bain will, will fund a trip. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just giving Bill a hard time. He's not here. But it would, this would be really, go to Bruce here. This would be really neat to see, I would think, to be able to see where these historical things have happened, among other places in biblical history. Yes, Brother Bruce. Just a, just a point of note, those of you who... Uh have internet capabilities. History Channel has a documentary of this particular uh, water canal hmm. and Hezekiah's as well uh, in the uh, attempt to disprove the myth that, that all of this was made up. Made up, right. And so they, they actually go into these places and some of the places uh, they mention the, the Soldiers had to get down on their hands and knees and get through portions of That's it. That's fascinating. It's, it's, a really, it's a really good documentary. It's probably on YouTube. All right. Thank you for mentioning that. Okay. Um, let's go ahead to verse. Anything else on the first 16 verses? I know we kind of breezed through that, but I want to go ahead and move on to uh, verses 17 through the end of the chapter. Is a return of what group of people? The Philistines. When in doubt, in the Old Testament, when you have an enemy of the Lord's people and and you're going to be awarded $10 if you get the question right, the Philistines uh, as being the bad guys, as being the nemesis. And so we see here the Philistines again. thought it was interesting um, just to go back and and search because I didn't know. The first time the Philistines are found are in the book of Genesis uh, chapter 10. We see them listed along with some of the other foreign peoples, the enemies of the Lord's people. Uh, anybody want to take a guess at which, and, and there's, I don't know if there's any real reason to point this. Well, nope, don't make a guess. I'll just tell you. Uh, it's found 190 times in the Old Testament. I was going to ask you which book do you think it is found the most often in, and it's found in the 31 chapters of First Samuel more often than any place else. That kind of makes sense to us, given the narrative of chapter 17, for example. You're going to see the word repeated over and over again because what happens in 1 Samuel 17, the most familiar chapter of 1 Samuel? Goliath, right, who was the the champion of the Philistines. Now, uh, there's a fight that ensues uh, in chapter 5 of 2 Samuel uh, Let's read just a couple of verses here. Before we do so, uh, the background for this fight, because whenever there's a war or a battle or a siege, it's always good to know, well, how did we get there? I mean, why are we fighting? Uh, And sometimes throughout world history, the reason that people fight is 
not humorous, but it is almost humorous. Um, and so this is not a humorous situation at all. But First Samuel chapter 31 lays the groundwork for what happened. And, and Mitch talked about that about four weeks ago. When the Philistines heard, verse 17, that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord. So that brings us to our, the first thing, and, and my pronunciation of these words may be different than yours, Rephaim. Um, but what is uh, David's first choice of action that I just read in verse 19? He goes to the Lord. And that's one of the key points that we made last week. One of the big applications we're getting out of the first two or three weeks of our study here is David's first action is to go and seek what the Lord wants him to do. Then, and the Lord says to him, do what? He says, go. Uh, parentheses, victory will be yours is, is the is the understanding of that. And then when the victory occurs, what does David do? Immediately. Oh, well, uh, let me, let's read verse, verse 20. David went to Baal Perazim and David defeated him there and said, what? The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Um, so he ascribes victory to who? To the Lord. So he seeks the Lord, and then when the Lord delivers, he doesn't say, look at the success that I have had militarily or politically. Look at the success that God has brought towards me. Um, we see here then, verse 22, the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the, in the valley. David, verse 22, or verse 23 inquires yet again. Uh, this time God says what? Don't go. And do what? Circle around. And let's read verse 24. It shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. Notice, if you want to underline, the Lord will go out, not you will go out. Even though you are the ones who are carrying the weapons and you are the soldiers, the Lord will go out. David did so as the Lord commanded him. He drove back the Philistines from Geba or from Geba as far as Gezer or Gezer. And I'm told that that's a, uh, about a 20-mile route. Is, is what the notes that I came up with. I was curious how far that was. So it wasn't just drove him back uh, 300 yards. No, we're talking the distance from here to almost Nashville. Drove him back. Complete victory. Thoughts on chapter 5. I know we kind of went through that relatively quickly, but I want to get to chapter 6, which is uh, one of the more infamous chapters. All right, let's go ahead to chapter 6, and we'll spend two slides on chapter 6, then I want to end with some applications. Um, chapter 6 is most known for the infamous account of what? The ark and a person whose name will go down in infamy as Uzzah. 
Interestingly enough, uh, Uzzah is spelled U-Z-Z-A-H unless you're reading from 1 Chronicles and the H is left off. There are places uh, in the Old Testament where you have different spellings of the same name uh, of sometimes places or of people. Uh, But here you have the Ark of the Covenant coming to Jerusalem. Now, if we had lots of time, we'd go back and read 1 Samuel chapters 4, 5, 6, and the first verse or two of chapter 7. Can someone summarize that three and a half chapter span in 20 seconds? I'll let Mitch do it since Mitch was the teacher, if you want. I'll put you on a spot. The, uh, the Israelites take the ark into battle. The Philistines defeat them. They take the ark with them, and then it goes really bad for them. So then they put it on a cart and send it back. And it, uh, Very good. And when Mitch said it went really bad for them, the them were the Philistines, right? So it's like the Philistines are like, bad things are happening to us. Get this thing out of here. So they put it on a cart and they prepare to ship it out. So we kind of fast forward now to this period here in chapter 6 where it says, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, who is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on, on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. They brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. We'll stop there at about verse 4. What do we know about the ark? Uh, we know a lot of things about the ark. It's, it's uh, a, a container. Uh, that holds what? Just as a, a review of Deuteronomy and Exodus. Holds the tablets on which the commandments were written. Aaron's rod, which budded, which symbolized who was going to be the, the chosen one, so to speak. And the manna, which is, and, and all those have uh, images and pictures Uh, of what God had done in providing and leading the people and giving them a law. Um, What do we know about the ark details in terms of its transportation? Supposed to be carried uh, by certain people. So it had to be carried in a specific way by particular people. So we're going to talk about Uzzah's action in just a moment, but I do want to go back and just read two verses Uh, From Exodus 25, you could also look at Numbers 3, I think. Uh, But let's look at Exodus 25 very, very briefly here. Uh, Because let's, 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 let's be very frank and very honest. If a person reads 2 Samuel 6, verses 5, 6, and 7 and sees what's going to happen, he may think, well, that was cruel. That was unfair. I mean, Uzzah was just doing what any average human being would do. Well, hang on. There's some review work that needs to happen, and that goes all the way back to Exodus 25. 
make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits would be its length, a cubit and a half its width. I'm looking at verse 10. Overlay with pure gold. Verse 11, uh, you shall make it on a molding of gold all around. Verse 12, you shall cast four rings of gold for it. Put them in the four corners, two rings on one side, two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of the same kind of wood and overlay them with gold. Put the, holes, uh, put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark. This is verse 14, that the ark may be carried by them. So it's fairly straightforward uh, as to how the ark was supposed to be uh, carried, designed, and respected. Brother John here, uh, Cameron. Uh, so these things are just are laid out in, in very specific form. Brother John. Just note, in the way they carried it, no one ever touched it. Right. They put the poles through the rings and you know, carried it that way. Good point. Yeah. So this way you could prevent and safely secure it uh, and, and carry it in its prescribed fashion. That's a very good point that, that John made there. So... Um, for those of you that have never read 2 Samuel chapter 6 before, let's see what happens. David and all the house of Israel, verse 5, this is 2 Samuel 6, verse 5, played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, harps, stringed instruments, tambourines, systems, and cymbals. When they came to Nashon's threshing floor, Uzzah, who was one of the two characters who was driving the ark uh, back in the previous couple of verses, put out his hand to the ark of God, took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And then, verse 7, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error. If you want to circle the word error, that's important because this is an error because of exactly what Brother John talked about in Exodus 25. And he died there by the ark of God. Let's spend... um, a, a, a few seconds talking about that. Reactions to that. Before we get to, let me see where I am. Uh, we'll get to David's reaction here in just a minute. But Brother Nate, I uh, want to start with him. I think one thing that most of us can, can understand too, looking back at this, is most of these people that were involved in this, if not all of them, probably had some knowledge looking back at the history of the ark and it, how it was how it was put together a lot of things you just read read to us that they had they were they probably had the knowledge of how it should have rightfully been transported and the stipulations that God put put around mm-hmm. it and I think especially even David so when you look back at okay well who's the cause of Uzzah's death well yeah Uzzah was involved in it but who put him in that situation and all of them you know they, they should have known better. Mm-hmm. Okay. I like that idea. They should have known better very much. Brother Brian and then Brother Allen and then Brother John. This is a half question, half statement. But do you see any connection to chapter 5 and verse 21 where it talks about David and his men? It says the Philistines left their images there and David and his men carried them away. And uh, you know, I read images to be idols. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's interesting. I don't know if I've, I've ever noticed that verse. They didn't destroy those idols. They didn't destroy those images. It just says they carried them away. And I just wonder if there was a temptation for idolatry there. Hmm. And there is a connection here where God is making, making it very, very plain who is the one true God and mm-hmm. who is to be worshipped and who is to be revered. Um, and I just, 
before reading through these chapters, I don't know that I'd ever noticed verse 21, but it's just kind of one of these things that's just just slipped out there that they took those idols with them. And I I just wonder if there's a little bit of context there for what is happening here. Am I correct that in 1 Chronicles they burned them? Or did I dream that? Uh, you know what? I meant to put that in my in on the screen, but the parallel passage in First Chronicles something. Uh, chapter fourteen, verse twelve. David gave a commandment, and they burned the gods, which they do call them gods, there with fire. That doesn't mean, however, uh, to your point, and then then Brother Alan Cameron, uh, and then Brother John. That doesn't mean that there wasn't still, like you said, a, a lingering temptation with these things. Yeah, Brother Allen. Um, this, this account also is a description kind of of the state of David's kingdom in a way. Like we have read up to this point that after years and years of waiting and, and running and ruling part of the kingdom, he finally is really ruling all of God's people mm-hmm. and it's going he's expelling people he has this house built chapter 5 has the statement that he knew mm-hmm. that God had established his kingdom we're seeing big pictures of the anointed one Good that's point. promised here but it's very clear even though David is an anointed king of God in under his kingdom you still cannot approach God God is holy and you are not and if you come too close, you will pay a price. Yeah. Very stark reminder that while David is pointing us to the one, he is not the one. And his kingdom still does not have us closely connected to God. As we'll see in Hebrews where we can stroll into the holy mm-hmm. place confidently because yeah. of Jesus. We're just reminded here that this is not Excellent point. The, the ultimate state that God has planned here. Thank you. Uh, John. Uh, you American Standard reads in verse 7 that God's uh, anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverence. Mm-hmm. See, that was the same problem that uh, Saul had when not completely destroying the Amalekites like God told him to. Absolutely. Same problem that David had here at this same time, not carrying the ark the way God told him to do. It mm-hmm. would seem, mm-hmm. from man's way of thinking, that David didn't use just any old ox cart. He had a brand new one made just for this purpose. Mm-hmm. And so the way men think, well, that's showing God reverence. That's right? good it's enough. A brand new cart. But you never show God reverence unless you do exactly what he tells you to do. That's the only way. That's a good point. Uh, Miss Linda and then Mr. Bruce. Well, it, it just struck me. Um, I mean, and you're fixing to get into it, I'm sure, with David's. Um, reaction, but David should be um, happy that everybody involved is not laying on the ground like Uzzah. That's an interesting point. Because, I mean, he, he does it all wrong from the start. Mm-hmm. Good. While we're going to Bruce here, Cameron, um, what, is, what is David's reaction in, in a word or two? Yeah, he's, he's upset about it. He's bothered by it. Anger and fear, Anger and fear yeah. Yeah, Brother well, Bruce. I think there are two points here. Number one is that sin is not always personal. It affects other people. 
It affects our relationship with God. And sometimes it can have consequences that lead to uh, spiritual or physical death. The second thing is God means exactly what he says. Mm -hmm. And when you consider that, I've always considered that Uzzah made an involuntary reaction based on what was happening. Perhaps he revered uh, the ark. It, 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 had, it was coming back. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a gut reaction, just as if maybe you've got a, a box of nitroglycerin sitting uh, up here on the, the counter here, and uh, a small tremor happens, and you instinctively put your hand up. Mm -hmm. Well, the art to David and to all concerned was nitroglycerin in a, in a, in a sense. And to him, he was doing a good job. But mm -hmm. it's just like God told the children of Israel as, as he came down on the mountain in Sinai. Uh, even if an animal comes up, They'll die. You're, you're to die. Now, does an animal know what's going to uh, happen to him? No. Mm -hmm. he, he just reacts to he needs food, and there's some that looks good there. Mm -hmm. And we can do that with, with God and the things he's commanded. Absolutely. Uh, to make excuses for rejecting him or adding to it. So, Good point. When we get to our final couple of observations Number three out of four is going to go to the heart of what Bruce was saying there. Uh, David's reaction, what does he choose with the ark? Um, I'm sorry. Uh, remind me of your name again. Sarah. Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Sorry about that. That's fine. I just think it's interesting that two times before this, before he goes to war with the Philistines, we're told that he inquired of the Lord. Mm -hmm. And now when it comes time to move something mm -hmm. that's obviously very precious... And that he knows God had a hand that God actually made and gave all these directions about. He doesn't ask. He doesn't ask. He just makes case. an assumption that he knows what he's doing and goes ahead and does it. Maybe a lesson there. Yeah. Thank you. Um, he decides we're going to hold up with moving the, moving the ark any further, right? And decides to keep it at the house of whom? Obed-Edom, right? Um, and the lessons learned. Oops, let me go back here. The lessons learned are many, and that's what our last four minutes of discussion has been. It's just been so many lessons here and so many teaching points here, like what John was talking about and Bruce was talking about. And point three of our lessons learned at the conclusion is that when, we, when you think about why we partake of the Lord's Supper, why we don't worship with instrumental music, why we practice baptism as a means of salvation, all the different things that distinguishes us as members of the Lord's church from denominations. So much of that goes back to this biblical authority point of view that is rooted in passages like this. So this is, a, this is an important passage to have a grasp of because it applies to so many different things and it goes to so many different directions. Okay, we've got five and a half minutes to wrap up here and I've got about 10 minutes worth of stuff. So we'll go fast here. Uh, talk to me about the report of the house of Obed-Edom. What happens there? Verse 12, what happened to his house? He was blessed. Things are going well. So interestingly, when we make to Mitch's point, when the ark is in the Philistines' territory, bad things happen. When Obed-Edom has it in his house, things are going great. Well, again, it's not a, and I'm not suggesting this is a magic box. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. 
but this is a very sacred item to these people, and it belongs where it belongs. Verse 12 says, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with, with gladness. Doesn't say how he brought the ark, but I'm guessing he didn't try a card again, right? This time he went back to Exodus 25, peeled apart the pages and said, what does Exodus 25 say? Okay, I'll do it that way. All right. Um, so the ark finally comes to Jerusalem. Read First Chronicles chapter 15 and all that kind of stuff. And then just when things are going smoothly and everything is going great, someone mentioned there's no stabbing in the gut tonight, by the way. Um, no one getting stabbed in the stomach. Uh, what happens? That's kind of a, not kind of, it's a sour note. <laughs> There's a stabbing in the back, Michael. Uh, I, I just put up there, but Michael. All right, let's read some of those verses here very quickly. Verse 16, what is David doing? Uh, what, uh, what, what are the people doing in general? They're celebrating. They are happy. They are excited because the arcs come home. Things are going to be great. Life is wonderful. We have a king. Uh, I like what Alan had to say about the idea of this developing monarchy of David. Uh, there are sacrifices being made. Verse 14, David danced for the Lord with all his might. David was wearing a linen ephod. I'm told that this would be different than what he would regularly wear as a king with maybe royal robes and royal clothing. Uh, something likened to um, what others would wear. Now, the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, and Michael, Saul's daughter, interestingly enough, she's called Saul's daughter. You can say something about that here. I'm not saying that she wasn't, but there, she's more than just that. Um, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling. It's the new King James Version before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Uh, I looked up the New American Standard, and I forget what it says. Who has New American Standard? It doesn't say despise, I don't think. The ES, either the ESV or the NIV says something different. Doesn't matter. We, we, get, the, we get the picture here. Uh, although we may not get the picture. And that goes back to the point that Bruce and I were talking about right before class started here. Um, so my question is, um, oh, and, and then what happens to Michael going forward from that point? She didn't have any children. There's, there's significant consequence. We talked about that repeatedly in the Old Testament. For a woman not having children, that's, that's worse than dying uh, in Old Testament times in their culture. What happened, and we're going to run out of time here. So, but what is, what's, what's the deal? What's happening here? And let me suggest to you that there are two major schools of thought that I've come across. There may be a third. But what's happened here? Okay, going against God's anointing, speaking against God's anointing, that may have something to do with it, okay? David may have had something to do with it. Maybe there was some fault lying with him is what you're suggesting? No, no, I'm, I'm talking about why does she react the way that she does? When she says, shame on you, I'm so upset, you, and what does she say in verse 20? Uh... Uh, how glorious was the king of Israel today, in very sarcastic terms, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. What, is she, what does that mean? What, and, like, and, and, and I have 
not spent hours looking at this, but I did spend some minutes looking at this, uh, more than just a couple minutes. And there are a couple different schools of thought on this is what I'm, what I'm asking. You're not acting kingly. You're immoral. Some, some versions would use that word. Embarrassing. Em- embarrassing, someone said. Embarrassing to, the, to Michael, right? So uh, we're going to we have 30 seconds. If someone wants, someone, Alan, yeah, Brother Alan, you get the last word for tonight. Uh, for, for practical purposes, not what the Lord would view, I'm not sure Michael is still David's wife. We're told in 1 Samuel, okay. Saul grabbed her and gave her to someone else back when he had met Abigail. And so she really represents the old kingdom, right? She's Saul's daughter, as, as is mentioned Interesting. here. Interesting. I hadn't thought she's, of that. She's not, she doesn't seem to still be David's wife, I don't think, in those, per, for the, those practical purposes. And she is comparing, like, probably my father would never have behaved like this. He was very concerned with dignified. being dignified and dignified. But you see, David's not concerned with how the people would view him. He's concerned with, the with Lord. worship here. Interesting point. We are out of time. Hopefully you caught what Alan said there. So next week, think about two things, three things. One, uh, the status of Michael, which may or may not be able to be determined fully. Two, what does all this mean and why, the lessons learned. And then three, go ahead and read into chapters seven, I think eight and nine next week. I have to look at the outline to see exactly what we're covering. We'll stop there. Thank you all much.